The Ancient Wisdom, An Outline of Theosophical Teachings, by Annie Besant. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Introduction. Note, each chapter and the introduction has a summary of points at the beginning which will be narrated. Theosophy shown to be a coherent conception of the universe and the origin and basis of all religions. All great religions have a common basis of ethical and philosophical ideas. This fact universally granted, how is it explained? Two explanations given. One, the primitive man theory by doctors of comparative mythology. Two, a brotherhood of spiritual teachers in whose custody is the original teaching. Universal tradition points to the latter view, the spiritual verities of religion. China peopled by Turanians and Mongolians, their traditions precede the Aryan race. A classic of purity, probably connected with the Toltec Empire in Atlantis. The same teaching as to the unmanifested and the manifested as given in the Upanishads. Brahmanism and Northern Buddhism agree, but Southern form differs. Reincarnation and Karma Fundamentals The Supreme Logos, threefold in both religions. In Hebrew scriptures, duality apparent. Philo teaches the doctrine of the Logos. The Kabbalah teaches the doctrine of many gods. Reincarnation taught in the Zohar and traces of same belief in Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Egypt has its trinity, the Book of the Dead. Zoroastrianism, the Orphic system, points of contact between Pythagorean, Platonic, and Neoplatonic schools, and Hindu and Buddhist thought show a common source. The threefold logos as the trinity in the Christian religion. The unity of moral teaching in all religions. The purpose of the logos in the evolution of the universe. The unity underlying all religions. Right thought is necessary to right conduct, right understanding to right living, and the divine wisdom, whether called by its ancient Sanskrit name of Brahmavidya or its modern Greek name of Theosophia, Theosophy comes to the world as at once an adequate philosophy and an all-embracing religion and ethic. It was once said of the Christian scriptures by a devotee that they contained shallows in which a child could wade and depths in which a giant must swim. A similar statement might be made of theosophy, for some of its teachings are so simple and so practical that any person of average intelligence can understand and follow them, while others are so lofty, so profound, that the ablest strains his intellect to contain them and sinks exhausted in the effort. In the present volume, an attempt will be made to place theosophy before the reader simply and clearly, in a way which shall convey its general principles and truths as forming a coherent conception of the universe, and shall give such detail as is necessary for the understanding of their relations to each other. An elementary textbook cannot pretend to, to give the fullness of knowledge that may be obtained from abstruser works, but it should leave the student with clear fundamental ideas on his subject, with much indeed to add by future study, but with little to unlearn. 
And to the outline given by such a book, the student should be able to paint the details of further research. It is admitted on all hands that a survey of the great religions of the world shows that they hold in common many religious, ethical, and philosophical ideas. But while the fact is universally granted, the explanation of the fact is a matter of dispute. Some allege that religions have grown up on the soil of human ignorance, tilled by imagination, and have been gradually elaborated from crude forms of animism and fetishism. Their likenesses are referred to universal natural phenomena, imperfectly observed and fancifully explained. Solar and star worship being the universal key for one school, phallic worship the equally universal key for another, fear, desire, ignorance, and wonder led the savage to personify the powers of nature, and priests played upon his terrors and his hopes, his misty fancies and his bewildered questionings. Myths became scriptures and symbols facts, and as their basis was universal, the likeness of the products was inevitable. Thus speak the doctors of comparative mythology, and plain people are silenced but not convinced under the reign of proofs. They cannot deny the likenesses, but they dimly feel, are all man's dearest hopes and loftiest imaginings really nothing more than the outcome of savage fancies and of groping ignorance? Have the great leaders of the race, the martyrs and heroes of humanity, lived, wrought, suffered, and died deluded? For the mere personifications of astronomical facts and for the draped obscenities of barbarians? The second explanation of the common property in the religions of the world asserts the existence of an original teaching in the custody of a brotherhood of great spiritual teachers who, themselves, the outcome of past cycles of evolution, acted as the instructors and guides of the child humanity of our planet, imparting to its races and nations in turn the fundamental truths of religion in the form most adapted to the idiosyncrasies of the recipients. According to this view, the founders of the great religions are members of the One Brotherhood and were aided in their mission by many other members, lower in degree than themselves, initiates and disciples of various grades, eminent in spiritual insight and in philosophic knowledge or in purity of ethical wisdom. These guided the infant nations, gave them their polity, enacted their laws, ruled them as kings, taught them as philosophers, guided them as priests. All the nations of antiquity looked back to such mighty men, demigods and heroes, and they left their traces in literature, in architecture, in legislation. That such men lived, it seems difficult to deny in the face of universal tradition of still existing scriptures and of prehistoric remains for the most part now in ruins, to say nothing of other testimony which the ignorant would reject. The sacred books of the East are the best evidence for the greatness of their authors, for who in later days or in modern times can even approach the spiritual sublimity of their religious thought, the intellectual splendor of their philosophy, the breadth and purity of their ethic, and when we find that these books contain teachings about God, man and the universe, identical in substance under much variety of outer appearance, it does not seem unreasonable to refer to them in a central primary body of doctrine. To that body we give the name of the divine wisdom, in its Greek form, theosophy, 
as the origin and basis of all religions, it cannot be the antagonist of any. It is indeed their purifier, revealing the valuable inner meaning of much that has become mischievous in its external presentation by the perverseness of ignorance and the accretions of superstition. But it recognizes and defends itself in each, and seeks in each to unveil its hidden wisdom. No man in becoming a theosophist need cease to be a Christian, a Buddhist, a Hindu. He will but acquire a deeper insight into his own faith, a firmer hold on its spiritual truths, a broader understanding of its sacred teachings. As theosophy of old gave birth to religions, so in modern times does it justify and defend them. It is the rock whence all of them were hewn, the hole of the pit whence all were digged. It justifies at the bar of intellectual criticism the deepest longings and emotions of the human heart. It verifies our hopes for man. It gives us back ennobled our faith in God. The truth of this statement becomes more and more apparent as we study the various world scriptures and but a few selections from the wealth of material available will be sufficient to establish the fact and to guide the student in his search for further verification. The main spiritual verities of religion may be summarized thus. 1. One eternal, infinite, incognizable, real existence. 2. From that, the manifested God, unfolding from unity to duality, from duality to trinity. 3. From the manifested trinity, many spiritual intelligences guiding the cosmic order. 4. Man, a reflection of the manifested God and therefore a trinity fundamentally, his inner and real self being eternal, one with the self of the universe. 5. His evolution by repeated incarnations into which he is drawn by desire and from which he is set free by knowledge and sacrifice becoming divine in potency, as he had ever been divine in latency. China, with its now fossilized civilization, was peopled in old days by the Turanians, the fourth subdivision of the great fourth race, the race which inhabited the lost continent of Atlantis and spread its offshoots over the world. Mongolians, the last subdivision of that same race, later reinforced its population, so that in China we have traditions from ancient days, preceding the settlement of the fifth or Aryan race in India. In the Ching Chang Ching, or Classic of Purity, we have a fragment of an ancient scripture of singular beauty, breathing out the spirit of restfulness and peace, so characteristic of the original teaching. Mr. Leggy says in the introduction note to his translation, that the treatise is attributed to Koyon, or Husan, a Taoist of the Wu dynasty, A.D. 222-227, who is fabled to have attained to the state of an immortal, and is generally so denominated. He is represented as a worker of miracles, as addicted to intemperaments, and very eccentric in his ways. When shipwrecked on one occasion, he emerged from beneath the water with his clothes on wet and walked freely on its surface. Finally, he ascended to the sky in bright day. All these accounts may safely be put down as the figments of a later time. Such stories are repeatedly told of initiates of various degrees, and are by no means necessarily figments, but we are more interested in Ko Yuan's own account of the book. 
when I obtained the true Tao. I had recited this Ching book 10,000 times. It is what the spirits of heaven practice and had not been communicated to scholars of this lower world. I got it from the divine ruler of the Eastern Hua. He received it from the divine ruler of the Golden Gate. He received it from the royal mother of the West. Now, the divine ruler of the Golden Gate was the title by the initiate who ruled the Toltec Empire in Atlantis. And its use suggests that the classic of purity was brought thence to China when the Turinians separated off from the Toltecs. The idea is strengthened by the contents of the brief treatise, which deals with Tao, literally the way, the name by which the one reality is indicated in the ancient Turanian and Mongolian religion. We read, The great Tao has no bodily form, but it produced and nourishes heaven and earth. The great Tao has no passions, but it causes the sun and moon to revolve as they do. The great Tao has no name, but it affects the growth and maintenance of all things. This is the manifested God as unity, but duality supervenes. Now the Tao shows itself in two forms, the pure and the turbid, and has the two conditions of motion and rest. Heaven is pure and earth is turbid. Heaven moves and the earth is at rest. The masculine is pure and the feminine is turbid. The masculine moves and the feminine is still. The radical, purity, descended, and the turbid issue flowed abroad, and thus all things were produced. This passage is particularly interesting from the allusion to the active and receptive sides of nature. The distinction between spirit, the generator, and matter, the nourisher, so familiar in later writings. In the Tao Te Ching, the teaching as to the unmanifested and the manifested comes out very plainly. The Tao that can be trodden is not the enduring and unchanging Tao. The name that can be named is not the enduring and unchanging name. Having no name, it is the originator of heaven and earth. Having a name, it is the mother of all things. Under these two aspects, it is really the same. But as development takes place, it receives the different names. Together, we call them the mystery. Students of the Kabbalah will be reminded of one of the divine names, the concealed mystery. Again, there was something undefined and complete coming into existence before heaven and earth. How still it was and formless, standing alone and undergoing no change, reaching everywhere and in no danger of being exhausted. It may be regarded as the mother of all things. I do not know its name, and I give it the designation of the Tao. Making an effort to give it a name, I called it the Great. Great, it passes on in constant flow. Passes on, it becomes remote. Having become remote, it returns. Very interesting it is to see here the idea of the forthgoing and the returning of the one life, so familiar to us in Hindu literature. Familiar also seems the verse, All things under heaven sprang from it as existence and named. That existence sprang from it as non-existent and not named. That a universe might become the unmanifest must give forth the one from whom duality and trinity proceed. The Tao produced one, one produced two, two produced three, three produced all things. 
All things leave behind them the obscurity out of which they have come, and go forward to embrace the brightness into which they have emerged, while they are harmonized by the breath of vacancy. Breath of space would be a happier translation. Since all is produced from it, it exists in all. All pervading is the great Tao. It may be found on the left hand and on the right. It clothes all things as with a garment and makes no assumption of being their Lord. It may be named in the smallest things. All things return to their root and disappear and do not know that it is which presides over their doing so. It may be named in the greatest things. Chuang Zi, 4th century BC, in his presentation of the ancient teachings, refers to the spiritual intelligences coming from the Tao. It has its root and ground of existence in itself. Before there were heaven and earth, from of old, there it was securely existing. From it came the mysterious existence of spirits. From it, the mysterious existence of God. A number of the names of these intelligences follow. But such beings are so well known to play a great part in the Chinese religion that we need not multiply quotations about them. Man is regarded as a trinity, Taoism says Mr. Leggy, recognizes in him the spirit, the mind, and the body. This division comes out clearly in the classic of purity, in the teaching that man must get rid of desire to reach union with the one. Now the spirit of man loves purity, but his mind disturbs it. The mind of man loves stillness, but his desires draw it away. If he could always send his desires away, his mind would of itself become still. Let his mind be made clean, and his spirit of itself becomes pure. The reason why men are not able to attain to this is because their minds have not been cleansed, and their desires have not been sent away. If one is able to send the desires away, when he then looks in at his mind, he is no longer his. When he looks out at his body, it is no longer his. And when he looks farther off at external things, they are things which he has nothing to do with. Then, after giving the stages of indrawing to the condition of perfect stillness, it is asked, In that condition of rest independently of place, how can any desire arise? And when no desire any longer arises, there is the true stillness and rest. That true stillness becomes a constant quality and responds to external things without error. Yea, that true and constant quality holds possession of the nature. In such constant response and constant stillness, there is the constant purity and rest. He who has this absolute purity enters gradually into the inspiration of the true Tao. The supplied words... Inspiration of, rather cloud than elucidate, the meaning for entering into the Tao is congruous with the whole idea and with other scriptures. On putting away of desire is laid much stress in Taoism. A commentator on the classic of purity remarks that understanding the Tao depends on absolute purity, and the acquiring of this absolute purity depends entirely on the putting away of desire, which is the urgent practical lesson of the treatise. The Tao Te Ching says, Always without desire we must be found. If it's deep mystery we would sound. But if desire always within us be, its outer fringe is all that we shall see. Reincarnation does not seem to be so distinctly taught as might have been expected. 
although passages are found which imply that the main idea was taken for granted, and that the entity was considered as ranging through animal as well as human births. Thus we have the Zi, the quaint and wise story of a dying man, to whom his friend said, Great indeed is the Creator. What will he now make you to become? Where will he take you to? Will he make you the liver of a rat or the arm of an insect? Xilai replied, Wherever a parent tells a son to go, east, west, south, or north, he simply follows the command. Here now is a great founder, casting his metal. If the metal were to leap up in the pot and say, I must be made into a sword like the moish, the great founder would be sure to regard it as uncanny. So again, when a form is being fashioned in the mold of the womb, if it were to say, I must become a man, I must become a man, the Creator would be sure to regard it as uncanny. When we once understand that heaven and earth are a great melting pot, and the Creator a great founder, where can we have to go to that shall not be the right for us? We are born as from a quiet sleep, and we die to a calm awakening. Turning to the fifth, the Aryan race, we have the same teachings embodied in the oldest and greatest Aryan religion, the Brahmanical. The eternal existence is proclaimed in the Chandogya Upanishad as one only without a second, and it is written, It willed, I shall multiply for the sake of the universe. The supreme logos, Brahman, is threefold, being, consciousness, bliss, and it is said, From this arrive life. Mind and all the senses, ether, air, fire, water, earth, the support of all. No grander descriptions of deity can be found anywhere than in the Hindu scriptures. But they are becoming so familiar that brief quotation will suffice. Let the following serve as specimens of their wealth of gems. Manifest, near, moving in the secret place, the great abode wherein rests all that moves, breathes, and shuts the eyes. Know that, as to be worshipped, being and non-being the best, beyond the knowledge of all creatures, luminous, subtler than the subtle, in which the worlds and their denizens are infixed, that this imperishable Brahman, that also life and voice and mind, and the golden highest sheath is spotless, partless, Brahman, that the pure light of lights known by the knowers of the self, that deathless Brahman is before, Brahman behind Brahma to the right and to the left, below, above, pervading, the Brahman truly is the all, this the best. Beyond the universe, Brahman, the supreme, the great hidden in all beings according to their bodies, the one breath of the whole universe, the Lord, whom knowing men become immortal. I know that mighty spirit, the shining sun, Beyond the darkness, I know him, the unfading, the ancient, the soul of all, omnipresent by his nature, whom the Brahman knowers call unborn, whom they call eternal. When there is no darkness, no day or night, no being or non-being, there is, Shiva, even alone, that the indestructible, that is to be worshipped by Savriti, from that came forth the ancient wisdom. Not above, nor below, nor in the midst can he be comprehended, nor is there any similitude for him whose name is infinite glory. Not with the sight is established his form, 
none may by the eye behold him. They who know him by the heart and by the mind dwelling in the heart become immortal. That man in his inner self is one with the self of the universe. I am that is an idea that so thoroughly pervades all Hindu thought that man is often referred to as the divine town of Brahman, the town of nine gates, God dwelling in the cavity of his heart. In one manner is to be seen the being, which cannot be proved, which is eternal, without spot, higher than the ether, unborn, the great eternal soul. This great unborn soul is the same which abides as the intelligent soul in all living creatures, the same which abides as ether in the heart. In him it sleeps. It is the subduer of all, the ruler of all, the sovereign lord of all. It does not become greater by good works nor less by evil work. It is the ruler of all, the sovereign lord of all beings, the preserver of all beings, the bridge, the upholder of the worlds, so that they fall not to ruin. When God is regarded as the evolver of the universe, the threefold character comes out very clearly as Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma. Or again as Vishnu sleeping under the waters, the lotus springing from him, and in the lotus Brahma. Man is likewise threefold. And in the Mandukkaipanishad, the self is described as conditioned by the physical body, the subtle body, and the mental body and then rising out of all into the one without duality. From the Trimurti, Trinity, come many gods connected with the administration of the universe, as to whom it is said in the Vridharanyokapanishad, Adore him, ye gods, after whom the year by rolling day is completed, the light of lights as the immortal life. It is hardly necessary to even mention the presence of Brahmanism, of the teaching of reincarnation, since its whole philosophy of life turns on this pilgrimage of the soul, through many births and deaths, and not a book could be taken up in which this truth is not taken for granted. By desires, man is bound to the wheel of change, and therefore by knowledge, devotion, and the destruction of desires, man must set himself free. When the soul knows God, it is liberated. The intellect, purified by knowledge, beholds him. Knowledge joined to devotion finds the abode of Brahman. Whoever knows Brahman becomes Brahman. When desire is seized, the mortal becomes immortal and obtains Brahman. Buddhism, as it exists in its northern form, is quite at one with the more ancient faiths. But in the southern form, it seems to have let slip the idea of the logic trinity as of the one existence from which they come forth. The Logos in his triple manifestation is the first Logos, Amitba, the boundless light, the second, Avalokiteshvara, or Padmapani, Chenrisi, the third, Manjushri, the representative of creative wisdom corresponding to Brahma. Chinese Buddhism apparently does not contain the idea of a primordial existence beyond the Logos, but Nepalese Buddhism postulates Adibuddha, from whom Amitba arises. Padmapani is said to Itil to be the representative of compassionate providence and to correspond partly with Shiva. 
but as the aspect of the Buddhist trinity that sends forth incarnations, he appears rather to represent the same idea as Vishnu, to whom he is allied by bearing the lotus, fire and water or spirit and matter as the primary constituents of the universe. Reincarnation and karma are so much the fundamentals of Buddhism that it is hardly worthwhile to insist on them save to note the way of liberation and to remark that, as the Lord Buddha was a Hindu preaching to Hindus, Brahmanical doctrines are taken for granted constantly in his teaching, as a matter of course. He was a purifier and a reformer, not an iconoclast, and struck at the accretions due to ignorance, not at fundamental truths belonging to the ancient wisdom. Those beings who walk in the way of the law that has been well taught reach the other shore of the great sea of birth and death. That is difficult to cross. Desire binds man and must be gotten rid of. It is hard for one who is held by the fetters of desire to free himself of them, says the Blessed One. The steadfast who care not for the happiness of desires cast them off and do soon depart to nirvana. Mankind has no lasting desires. They are impermanent in them who experience them. Free yourselves, then, from what cannot last and abide not in the sojourn of death. He who has destroyed desires for worldly goods, sinfulness, the bonds of the eye of the flesh, who has torn up desire by the very root, he, I declare, is a Brahmin. And a Brahmin is a man having his last body, as is defined as one who, knowing his former abodes, existences, perceives heaven and hell, the Muni, who has found the way to put an end to birth. In the exoteric Hebrew scriptures, the idea of a trinity does not come out strongly, though duality is apparent, and the God spoken of is obviously the Logos, not the one unmanifest. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am the Lord that doeth all these things. Philo, however, has the doctrine of the Logos very clearly, and it is found in the fourth gospel. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In the Kabbalah, the doctrine of the One, the Three, the Seven, and then the Many is plainly taught. The Ancient of the Ancients, the Unknown of the Unknown, has a form yet also has not any form. It has a form through which the universe is maintained. It also has not any form as it cannot be comprehended. When it first took this form, Kether, the crown, the first logos, it permitted to proceed from it nine brilliant lights, wisdom and the voice forming with Kether the triad and then the seven lower Sephiroth. It is the ancient of the ancients, the mystery of the mysteries, the unknown of the unknown. It has a form which appertains to it since it appears through it to us as the ancient man above all, as the ancient of the ancients, and as that which there is the most unknown among the unknown. But under that form by which it makes itself known, it however still remains the unknown. Isaac Myers Kabbalah from the Zohar, pages 274-275. Meyer points out that the form is not the ancient of all the ancients, who is the Ein Sof. Again, Three lights are in the holy upper, which unite as one, and they are the basis of the Torah. And this opens the door to all. Come see the mystery of the word. 
These are three degrees and each exists by itself, and yet all are one and knotted in one. Nor are they separated one from another. Three come out from one. One exists in three. It is the force between two. Two nourish one. One nourishes many sides. Thus all is one. Needless to say that the Hebrews held the doctrine of many gods. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? And of multitudes of subordinate ministrants, the sons of God, the angels of the Lord, the ten angelic hosts, of the commencement of the universe, the Zohar teaches, In the beginning was the will of the king, prior to any existence which came into being through emanation from this will. It sketched and engraved the forms of all things that were to be manifested from concealment into view in the supreme and dazzling light of the quadrant, the sacred tetractus. Nothing can exist in which the deity is not imminent, and with regard to reincarnation, it is taught that the soul is present in the divine idea, you're coming to earth. If the soul remained quite pure during its trial, it escaped rebirth. But this seems to have been only a theoretical possibility, as it is said. All souls are subject to revolution, metempsychosis, Aline Bilgugla. But men do not know the ways of the Holy One, blessed be it. They are ignorant of the way they have been judged in all time, and before they came into this world, and when they have quitted it. Traces of this belief occur both in the Hebrew and Christian exoteric scriptures, as in the belief that Elijah would return, and later that he had returned in John the Baptist. Turning to glance at Egypt, we find there from hoariest antiquity its famous trinity Ra, Osiris, Isis, as the dual second logos, and Horus. The great hymn to Amun-Ra will be remembered. The gods bow before thy majesty by exalting the souls of that which produceth them, and say to thee, Peace to all emanations from the unconscious father of the conscious fathers of the gods. Thou producer of beings, we adore the souls which emanate from thee. Thou begettest us, O thou unknown, and we greet thee in worshipping each god-soul which descendeth from thee and liveth in us. Quoted in the Secret Doctrine 3, page 486. The conscious fathers of the gods, or the Logoi, the unconscious father, is the one existence, unconscious not as being less but as being infinitely more than what we call consciousness, a limited thing. In the fragments of the Book of the Dead, we can study the conceptions of the reincarnating of the human soul, of its pilgrimage towards and its ultimate union with the Logos. The famous papyrus of the scribe Ani, triumphant in peace, is full of touches that remind the reader of the scriptures of other faiths. His journey through the underworld, his expectation of re-entering his body, the form taken by reincarnation among the Egyptians, his identification with the Logos. Saith Osiris Ani, I am the Great One, Son of the Great One. I am fire, the Son of Fire. I have knit together my bones. I have made myself whole and sound. I have become young once more. I am Osiris, the Lord of Eternity. In Pierrette's recension of the Book of the Dead, we find the striking passage. I am the being of the mysterious names who prepares for himself dwellings for millions of years, heart that comest to me from my mother, my heart necessary to my existence on earth, heart that comes to me 
from my mother, heart that is necessary to me for my transformation. In Zoroastrianism, we find the conception of the one existence, imaged as boundless space, whence arises the Logos, the creator Ahumazd. Supreme in omniscience and goodness, and unrivaled in splendor, the region of light is the place of Ormazd. The Bundahi, Sacred Books of the East, version 3, 4, V2. To him in the Yasna, the chief liturgy of the Zarathustrians, homage is first paid. I announce and I will complete my Yasna worship to Ahura Mazda, the creator, the radiant and glorious, the greatest and the best, the most beautiful to our conceptions, the most firm, the wisest, and the one of all whose body is most perfect, who attains his ends the most infallibly. Because of his righteous order, to him who disposes our minds aright, who sends his joy-creating grace afar, who made us and has fashioned us, and who has nourished and protected us, who is the most bounteous spirit. Sacred Books of the East, 31, page 195-196. The worshipper then pays homage to the Amashpans and other gods. But the supreme manifested God, the Logos, is not here presented as triune. As with the Hebrews, there was a tendency in the exoteric faith to lose sight of this fundamental truth. Fortunately, we can trace the primitive teaching, though it disappeared in later times from the popular belief. Dr. Haug and his essays on the Parsis, translated by Dr. West and forming volume 5 of the Tribner's Oriental Stories, says that Ahura Mazda, Ahumazd, or Hormazd is the supreme being, and that from him were produced two primeval causes, which, though different, were united and produced the world of material things as well as that of the spirit. These were called twins and are everywhere present in Hormazda as well as in man. One produces reality, the other non-reality. And it is these who in later Zoroastrianism became the opposing spirits of good and evil. In the earlier teachings, they evidently form the second Logos, duality being his characteristic mark. The good and bad are merely light and darkness, spirit and matter, the fundamental twins of the universe, the two from the one. Criticizing the later idea, Dr. Haug says, Such is the original Zoroastrian notion of the two creative spirits, who form only two parts of the divine being. But in the course of time, this doctrine of the great founder was changed and corrupted, in consequence of misunderstandings and false interpretations. Spent Manush, the good spirit, was taken as a name of Ahura Mazda himself. And then, of course, Angro Manush, the evil spirit, by becoming entirely separated from Ahura Mazda, was regarded as the constant adversary of Ahura Mazda. Thus, the dualism of good and evil arose. Dr. Haug's view seems to be supported by the Gata Ahunvati, given with the other Gathas by the archangels to Zoroaster or Zarathustra. In the beginning, there was a pair of twins, two spirits, each of a peculiar activity. These are the good and the base. And these two spirits united created the first, the material things, one, the reality, the other, the non-reality. And to succour this life, to increase it, our mate came with wealth, the good and true mind. She, the everlasting one, created the material world. 
All perfect things are garnered up in the splendid residence of the good mind, the wise and the righteous, who are known as the best beings. Yaz, 30.34710, Dr. Hogg's Translation, pages 149 to 151. Here, the three Logi are seen, Ahura Mazda, the first, the supreme life, in and from him, the twins, the second Logos, then Armaiti, the mind, the creator of the universe, the third Logos. Later, Mithra appears, and in the exoteric faith, clouds the primitive truth to some extent. Of him, it is said, whom Ahura Mazda has established to maintain and look over all this moving world, who, never sleeping, wakefully guards the creation of Mazda. Mithiryast. 25-1-103, Sacred Books of the East, 18. He was a subordinate god, the light of heaven, as Varuna was the heaven itself, one of the great ruling intelligences. The highest of these ruling intelligences were the six Amashpans, headed by the good thought of Ahura Mazda, Vohuman, who have charge of the whole material creation, Sacred Books of the East. Reincarnation does not seem to be taught in the books, which so far have been translated, and the belief is not current among modern Parsis. But we do find the idea of the spirit in man as a spark that is to become a flame and to be reunited to the supreme fire, and this must imply a development for which rebirth is a necessity. Nor will Zoroastrianism ever be understood until we recover the Chaldean oracles and allied writings for there is its real root. Traveling westwards to Greece, we meet with the Orphic system, described with such abundant learning by Mr. G. R. S. Mead in his works Orpheus. The ineffable, thrice-unknown darkness was the name given to the one existence. According to the theology of Orpheus, all things originate from an immense principle, to which, through the imbecility and poverty of human conception, we give a name. Though it is perfectly ineffable, and in the reverential language of the Egyptians, it is a thrice unknown darkness in contemplation of which all knowledge is refunded into ignorance. Thomas Taylor quoted in Orpheus, page 93. From this, the primordial triad, universal good, universal soul, universal mind, again the logic trinity. Of this, Mr. Mead writes, the first triad, which is manifestable to intellect, is but a reflection of or substitute for the unmanifestable, and its hypostases are A. The good, which is superessential, B. Soul, the world soul, which is a self-motive essence, and C. Intellect, or the mind, which is an impartable, immovable essence. After this series of ever-descending triads, showing the characteristics of the first in diminishing splendor, until man is reached who has in him potentially the sum and substance of the universe. The race of men and gods is one, Pindar, who was a Pythagorean quoted by Clemens, Strom 5709. This man was called the microcosm or little world, to distinguish him from the universe or great world. He has the nous, or real mind, the logos, or rational part, the allegos, or irrational part, the two latter again forming a triad, 
and thus presenting the more elaborate septenary division. The man was also regarded as having three vehicles, the physical and subtle bodies, and the luciform body, or ogadais. That is the causal body, or karmic vesture of the soul, in which its destiny, or rather all the seeds of past causation, are stored. This is this thread soul, as it is sometimes called the body, that passes over from one incarnation to another. I bid, page 284. As to reincarnation... Together with all the adherents of the mysteries in every land, the Orphics believed in reincarnation. Ibid 2.92 To this, Mr. Mead brings abundant testimony, and he shows that it was taught by Plato, Empedocles, Pythagoras, and others. Only by virtue could men escape from the life wheel. Taylor, in his notes to the secret works of Plotinus, quotes from Damascius as to the teachings of Plato on the one beyond the one, the unmanifest existence. Perhaps indeed Plato leads us ineffably through the one as a medium to the ineffable beyond the one, which is now the subject of discussion. And this by an oblation of the one in the same manner as he leads to the one by an oblation of other things. That which is beyond the one is to be honored in the most perfect silence. The one indeed wills to be by itself, but with no other. But the unknown beyond the one is perfectly ineffable, which we acknowledge we neither know nor are ignorant of, but which has about itself super-ignorance. Hence, by proximity to this, the one itself is darkened. For being near to the immense principle, if it be lawful, so to speak, it remains, as it were, in the adictum of that truly mystic silence. The first is above the one and all things, being more simple than either of these. Pages 341-343 The Pythagorean, Platonic, and Neoplatonic schools have so many points of contact with Hindu and Buddhist thought that their issue from one fountain is obvious. R. Garb, in his work, De Samkhya Philosophie, 3 pages 85-105, presents many of these points, and his statement may be summarized as follows. The most striking is the resemblance, or more correctly the identity, of the doctrine of the one and only in the Upanishads and the Eletic school. Xenophanes' teachings of the unity of God and the cosmos and of the changelessness of the one, and even more that of Parmenides, who held that reality is ascribable only to the one unborn, indestructible, and omnipresent, while all that is manifold and subject to change is but an appearance, and further that being and thinking are the same. These doctrines are completely identical with the essential contents of the Upanishads and of the Vedantic philosophy which springs from them. But even earlier still, the view of Thales that all that exists has sprung from water, is curiously like the Vedic doctrine that the universe arose from the waters. Later on, Anaximander assumed as the basis of all things an eternal, infinite, and indefinite substance, from which all definite substances proceed and into which they return. An assumption identical with that which lies at the root of the Sankhya, viz. the Prakriti, from which the whole material side of the universe evolved. And his famous saying, Pantari, 
expresses the characteristic view of the Sankhya that all things are ever-changing under the ceaseless activity of the three gunas. Empedocles again taught theories of transmigration and evolution, practically the same as those of the Sankhyas. While his theory that nothing came into being which does not already exist is even more closely identical with that characteristically Sankhyan doctrine. Both Anaxagoras and Democritus also present several points of close agreement, especially the latter's view as to the nature and position of the gods, and the same applies notably in some curious matters of detail to Epicurus. But it is, however, in the teachings of Pythagoras that we find the closest and most frequent identities of teachings and argumentation. Explained as due to Pythagoras himself having visited India and learnt his philosophy there, as tradition asserts. In later centuries, we find some peculiarly Sankhyan and Buddhist ideas playing a prominent part in Gnostic thought. The following quotation from Lassen, cited by Garb on page 97, shows this very clearly. Buddhism in general distinguishes clearly between spirit and light, and does not regard the latter as immaterial, but a view of light is found among them which is closely related to that of the Gnostics. According to this, light is the manifestation of spirit and matter. The intelligence thus clothed in light comes into relation with matter, in which the light can be lessened and at last quite obscured, in which case the intelligence falls finally into complete unconsciousness. Of the highest intelligence it is maintained that it is neither light nor not light, neither darkness nor not darkness, since all these expressions denote relations of the intelligence to the light which indeed in the beginning was free from these connections, but later on encloses the intelligence and mediates its connection with matter. It follows from this that the Buddhist view ascribes to the highest intelligence the power to produce light from itself, and that in this respect also there is an agreement between Buddhism and Gnosticism. Garb here points out that as regards the features alluded to, the agreement between Gnosticism and the Sankhya is very much closer than that with Buddhism. For while these views as to the relations between light and spirit pertain to the later phases of Buddhism, and are not at all fundamental to, or characteristic of it as such, the Sankhya teaches clearly and precisely that spirit is light. Later still, the influence of the Sankhya thought is very plainly evident in the Neoplatonic writers. While the doctrine of the Logos, or word, though not of Sankhyan origin shows even in its details that it has been derived from India, where the conception of Vak, the divine word, plays so prominent a part in the Brahmanical system. Coming to the Christian religion, contemporaneous with the Gnostic and Neoplatonic systems, we shall find no difficulty in tracing most of the same fundamental teachings with which we have now become so familiar. The threefold Logos appears as the Trinity. The first Logos, the fount of all life, being the Father. The dual-natured, second Logos, the Son, God-Man. The third, the creative mind, the Holy Ghost, whose brooding over the waters of chaos brought forth the worlds. Then come the seven spirits of God, and the hosts of archangels and angels. Of the one existence from which all comes and into which all returns, but little is hinted, the nature that by searching cannot be found out. But the great doctors of the Church Catholic always posit the unfathomable deity, incomprehensible, infinite, and therefore necessarily but one and partless. 
Man is made in the image of God and is consequently triple in his nature, spirit and soul and body. He is a habitation of God, the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Ghost. Phrases that exactly echo the Hindu teaching. The doctrine of reincarnation is rather taken for granted in the New Testament than distinctly taught. Thus, Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, declares that he is Elias, which was for to come. Referring to the words of Malachi, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. And again, when asked as to Elijah coming before the Messiah, he answered that Elias has come already and they knew him not. So again, we find the disciples taking reincarnation for granted and asking whether blindness from birth was a punishment for a man's sin. And Jesus, in answer, not rejecting the possibility of antenatal sin, but only excluding it as causing the blindness in the special instance. The remarkable phrase applied to him that overcometh, in Rev 3.12, that he shall be a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, has been taken as signifying escape from rebirth. From the writings of some of the Christian fathers, a good case may be made out for a current belief in reincarnation. Some argue that only the pre-existence of the soul is taught, but this view does not seem to me supported by the evidence. The unity of moral teaching is not less striking than the unity of the conceptions of the universe and of the experiences of those who rose out of the prison of the body into the freedom of the higher spheres. It is clear that this body of primeval teaching was in the hands of definite custodians who had schools in which they taught disciples who studied their doctrines. The identity of these schools and of their discipline stands out plainly when we study the moral teaching, the demands made on the pupils, and the mental and spiritual states to which they were raised. A caustic division is made in the Tao Te Ching of the types of scholars. Scholars of the highest class, when they hear about the Tao, earnestly carry it into practice. Scholars of the middle class, when they have heard about it, seem now to keep it and now to lose it. Scholars of the lowest class, when they have heard about it, laugh greatly at it. Sacred Books of the East, 39. In the same book we read, The sage puts his own person last, and yet it is found in the foremost place. He treats his person as if it were foreign to him, and yet that person is preserved. It is not because he has no personal and private ends that, therefore, such ends are realized. He is free from self-display, and therefore he shines, from self-assertion, and therefore he is distinguished, from self-boasting, and therefore his merit is acknowledged, from self-complacency, and therefore he acquires superiority. It is because he is thus free from striving that therefore no one in the world is able to strive with him. There is no guilt greater than to sanction ambition, no calamity greater than to be discontented with one's lot, no fault greater than the wish to be getting. To those who are good, to me, I am good. And to those who are not good, to me, I am also good. And thus all get to be good. To those who are sincere, with me, I am sincere. And to those who are not sincere, with me, I am also sincere. And thus all get to be sincere. He who has in himself abundantly the attributes of the Tao is like an infant. Poisonous insects will not sting him. Fierce beasts will not seize him. Birds of prey will not strike him. I have three precious things which I prize and hold fast. The first is gentleness. The second is economy. The third is shrinking from taking precedence of others. 
gentleness is sure to be victorious even in battle and firmly to maintain its ground. Heaven will save its possessor by his very gentleness protecting him. Among the Hindus, there were selected scholars deemed worthy of special instruction to whom the guru imparted the secret teachings. While the general rules of right living may be gathered from Manu's ordinances, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, and many other treatises, let him say what is true, let him say what is pleasing, let him utter no disagreeable truth, and let him utter no agreeable falsehood. That is the eternal law. Manu 4. Giving no pain to any creature, let him slowly accumulate spiritual merit. For that twice-born man, by whom not the smallest danger even is caused to created beings, there will be no danger from any quarter after he is freed from his body. Let him patiently bear hard words, let him not insult anybody, and let him not become anybody's enemy for the sake of this perishable body. Again an angry man, let him not in return show anger, let him bless when he is cursed. Freed from passion, fear and anger, thinking on me, taking refuge in me, purified in the fire of wisdom, many have entered into my being. Bhagavad Gita Supreme joy is for this yogi whose manas is peaceful, whose passion nature is calmed, who is sinless and of the nature of Brahman. He who beareth no ill will to any being, friendly and compassionate, without attachment and egoism, balanced in pleasure and pain and forgiving, ever content, harmonious, with the self-controlled, resolute, with manas and booty dedicated to me, he, my devotee, is dear to me. If we turn to the Buddha, we find him with his arhats, to whom his secret teachings were given. While published, we have, The wise man, through earnestness, virtue, and purity, makes himself an island which no flood can submerge. Udhanavagara The wise man in this world holds fast to faith and wisdom. These are his greatest treasures. He casts aside all other riches. He who bears ill will to those who bear ill will can never become pure. But he who feels no ill will pacifies those who hate, as hatred brings misery to mankind. The sage knows no hatred. Overcome anger by not being angered. Overcome evil by good. Overcome avarice by liberality. Overcome falsehoods by truth. The Zoroastrian is taught to praise Ahura Mazda, and then, what is fairest, what pure, what immortal, what brilliant, all that is good the good spirit we honor, the good kingdom we honor, and the good law and the good wisdom, yasna. May there come to this dwelling contentment, blessing, guilelessness, and wisdom of the pure. Purity is the best good. Happiness, happiness is to him, namely to that best pure in purity. All good thoughts, words, and works are done with knowledge. All evil thoughts, words, and works are not done with knowledge. Selected from the Avesta in Ancient Iranian and Zoroastrian Morals by Junaboy, Jamsita Medora. The Hebrew had his schools of the prophets and his Kabbalah. And in the exoteric books we find the accepted moral teachings. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully? What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? 
The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to lose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out of thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? The Christian teacher had his secret instructions for his disciples, and he bade them, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. Matthew. For public teaching, we may refer to the Beatitudes on the Sermon of the Mount, and to such doctrines as, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matt. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatness in the kingdom of heaven. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. John. Galatians. The school of Pythagoras and those of the Neoplatonists kept up the tradition for Greece, and we know that Pythagoras gained some of his learning in India, while Plato studied and was initiated in the schools of Egypt. More precise information has been published of the Grecian schools than of others, the Pythagorean had pledged disciples as well as an outer discipline, the inner circle passing through three degrees during five years of probation. For details, see GRS Meads Orpheus, pages 263. The outer discipline he describes as follows. We must first give ourselves up entirely to God. When a man prays, he should never ask for any particular benefit, fully convinced that that will be given which is right and proper and according to the wisdom of God and not the subject of our own selfish desires. Theodorus Siculus. By virtue alone does man arrive at blessedness, and this is the exclusive privilege of a rational being. The Bodamus. In himself of his own nature, man is neither good nor happy, but he may become so by the teaching of the true doctrine. The most sacred duty is filial piety. God showers his blessings on him who honors and reveres the author of his days, says Pompelus. Ingratitude towards one's parents is the blackest of all crimes, writes Pericetioni, who is supposed to have been the mother of Plato. The cleanliness and delicacy of all Pythagorean writings were remarkable. In all that concerns chastity and marriage, their principles are of the utmost purity. Everywhere the great teacher recommends chastity and temperance, but at the same time he directs that the married should first become parents before living a life of absolute celibacy, in order that children might be born under favorable conditions for continuing the holy life and succession of the sacred science. Iamblichus. Heraclides. This is exceedingly interesting, for it is precisely the same regulation that is laid down in the Manava Dharma Shastra, the great Indian code. Adultery was most sternly condemned. The Amblicus. 
Moreover, the most gentle treatment of the wife by the husband was enjoined, for had he not taken her as his companion before the gods? Lascaux Marriage was not an animal union, but a spiritual tie. Therefore, in her turn, the wife should love her husband even more than herself, and in all things be devoted and obedient. It is further interesting to remark that the finest characters among women with which ancient Greece presents us were formed in the school of Pythagoras, and the same is true of the men. The authors of antiquity are agreed that this discipline had succeeded in producing the highest examples not only of the purest chastity and sentiment, but also a simplicity of manners, a delicacy, and a taste for serious pursuits which was unparalleled. This is even admitted by Christian writers. See Justin. Among the members of the school, the idea of justice directed all their acts, while they observed the strictest tolerance and compassion in their mutual relationships. For justice is the principle of all virtue, as Paulus teaches. Tis justice which maintains peace and balance in the soul. She is the mother of good order in all communities, makes concord between husband and wife, love between master and servant. The word of a Pythagorean was also his bond. And finally, a man should live so as to be ever ready for death. Hippolytus. The treatment of the virtues in the Neoplatonic schools is interesting, and the distinction is clearly made between morality and spiritual development, or as Plotinus put it, the endeavor is not to be without sin, but to be a god. The lowest stage was the becoming without sin by acquiring the political virtues, which made a man perfect in conduct the physical and ethical being below these, the reason controlling and adorning the irrational nature. Above these were the cathartic, pertaining to reason alone, and which liberated the soul from the bonds of generation, the theoretic, lifting the soul into touch with natures superior to itself, and the paradynamic, giving it to a knowledge of true being. Hence he who emerges according to the practical virtues is a worthy man, but he who energizes according to the cathartic virtues is a demoniacal man, or is also a good demon. He who energizes according to the intellectual virtues alone is a god, but he who energizes according to the paradynamic virtues is the father of the gods. Note on intellectual prudence. By various practices, the disciples were taught to escape from the body and to rise into higher regions. As grass is drawn from a sheath, the inner man was to draw himself from his bodily casing. The body of light, or radiant body, of the Hindus is the elusive form body of the Neoplatonists. And in this, the man rises to find the self. Not grasped by the eye, nor by speech, nor by the other senses. Nor by austerity, nor by religious rites. By serene wisdom, by the pure essence only, doth only see the partless one in meditation. The subtle self is to be known by the mind in which the fivefold life is sleeping. The mind of all creatures is extinct with these lives, and this purified manifests the self. Mundak Panashad. Then alone can man enter the region where separation is not. Where the spheres have ceased, in G.R.S. Mead's introduction to Taylor's Plotinus, he quotes from Plotinus a description of a sphere, which is evidently the Turiya of the Hindus. They likewise see all things, not those with which generation, but those with 
which essence is present, and they perceive themselves in others. For all things there are diaphanous, and nothing is dark and resisting, but everything is apparent to everyone internally and throughout. For light everywhere meets with light, since everything contains all things in itself, and again sees all things in another, so that all things are everywhere, and all is all. Each thing likewise is everything, and the splendor there is infinite, for everything there is great, since even that which is small is great. The sun too, which is there, is all the stars. And again, each star is the sun and all the stars. In each, however, a different property predominates. But at the same time, all things are visible in each. Motion, likewise, there is pure, for the motion is not confounded by a mover different from it. A description which is a failure, because the region is one above describing by mortal language, but a description that could only have been written by one whose eyes had been opened. A whole volume might easily be filled with the similarities between the religions of the world, but the above imperfect statement must suffice as a preface to the study of theosophy, to that which is a fresh and fuller presentiment to the world of the ancient truths on which it has ever been fed. All these similarities point to a single source, and that is the Brotherhood of the White Lodge, the hierarchy of adepts who watch over and guide the evolution of humanity and who have preserved these truths unimpaired, from time to time as necessity arose, reasserting them in the ears of men. From other worlds, from earlier humanities, they came to help our globe, evolved by a process comparable to that now going on with ourselves, and that will be more intelligible when we have completed our present study than it may now appear, and they have afforded this help reinforced by the flower of our own humanity from the earliest times until today. Still they teach eager pupils, showing the path and guiding the disciples' steps. Still they may be reached by all who seek them, bearing in their hands the sacrificial fuel of love, of devotion, of unselfish longing to know in order to serve. Still they carry out the ancient discipline, still unveil the ancient mysteries. The two pillars of their lodge gateway are love and wisdom, and through its straight portal can only pass those from whose shoulders has fallen the burden of desire and selfishness. A heavy task lies before us, and beginning on the physical plane we shall climb slowly upwards, but a bird's-eye view of the great sweep of evolution and of its purpose may help us. Here we begin our detailed study in the world that surrounds us. A logos, ere a system has begun to be, has in his mind the whole, existing as idea. All forces, all forms, all that in due process shall emerge into objective life. He draws the circle of manifestation within which he wills to energize, and circumscribes himself to be the life of his universe. As we watch, we see strata appearing of successive densities till seven vast regions are apparent, and in these centers of energy appear whirlpools of matter that separate from each other, until when the process of separation and of condensation are over, so far as we are here concerned, we see a central sun, the physical symbol of the Logos, and seven great planetary chains, each chain consisting of seven globes, narrowing down our view to the chain of which our globe is one we see life waves sweep round it forming the kingdoms of nature, the three elemental, the mineral, vegetable, animal, human. 
narrowing down our view still further to our own globe and its surroundings, we watch human evolution and see man developing self-consciousness by a series of many life periods. Then centering on a single man, we trace his growth and see that each life period has a threefold division, that each is linked to all life periods behind it, reaping their results, and to all life periods before it, sowing their harvests, by a law that cannot be broken. That thus man may climb upwards with each life period adding to his experience, each life period lifting him higher in purity, in devotion, in intellect, in power of usefulness, until at last he stands where they stand, who are now the teachers, fit to pay to his younger brothers the debt he owes to them. Chapter 1. The Physical Plane We have just seen that the source from which a universe proceeds is a manifested divine being, to whom in the modern form of the ancient wisdom the name Logos, or Word, has been given. The name is drawn from Greek philosophy, but perfectly expresses the ancient idea, the word which emerges from the silence, the voice, the sound, by which the worlds come into being. We must now trace the evolution of spirit matter, in order that we may understand something of the nature of the materials with which we have to deal on the physical plane or physical world. For it is in the potentialities wrapped up, involved in the spirit matter of the physical world that lies the possibility of evolution. The world process is an unfolding self-moved from within and aided by intelligent beings, without, who can retard or quicken evolution, but cannot transcend the capacities inherent in the materials. Some idea of these earliest stages of the world's becoming is therefore necessary although any attempt to go into minute details would carry us far beyond the limits of such an elementary treatise as the present. A very cursory sketch must suffice. Coming forth from the depths of the one existence, from the one beyond all thought and all speech, a Logos, by imposing on himself a limit, circumscribing voluntarily the range of his own being, becomes the manifested God and tracing the limiting sphere of his activity thus outlines the area of his universe. Within that sphere, the universe is born, is evolved, and dies. It lives, it moves, it has its being in him, its matter is his emanation. Its forces and energies are currents of his life. He is imminent in every atom, all-pervading, all-sustaining, all-evolving. He is its source and its end its cause and its object, its center and circumference. It is built on him as its sure foundation. It breathes in him as its encircling space. He is in everything and everything in him. Thus have the sages of the ancient wisdom taught us of the beginning of the manifested worlds. From the same source we learn of the self-unfolding of the Logos into a threefold form. The first Logos, the root of being from him the second, manifesting the two aspects of life and form, the primal duality, making the two poles of nature between which the web of the universe is to be woven. Life, form, spirit, matter, positive, negative, active, receptive, father, mother of the worlds. Then the third logos, the universal mind, that in which all archetypally exists, the source of beings, the fount of fashioning energies, the treasure house in which are stored up all the archetypal forms which are to be brought forth and elaborated in lower kinds of matter, 
during the evolution of the universe. These are the fruits of past universes brought over as seeds for the present. The phenomenal spirit and matter of any universe are finite in their extent and transitory in their duration, but the roots of spirit and matter are eternal. The root of matter has been said by a profound writer to be visible to the Logos as a veil thrown over the one existence, the Supreme Brahma, to use the ancient name. It is this veil which the Logos assumes for the purpose of manifestation, using it for the self-imposed limit which makes activity possible. From this he elaborates the matter of his universe, being himself its informing, guiding, and controlling life. Of what occurs on the two higher planes of the universe, the seventh and the sixth, we can form but the haziest conception. The energy of the Logos, as whirling motion of inconceivable rapidity, digs holes in space in this root of matter. And this vortex of life encased in a film of the root of matter is the primary atom. These and their aggregations spread throughout the universe form all the subdivisions of spirit matter of the highest or seventh plane. The sixth plane is formed by some of the countless myriads of these primary atoms setting up a vortex in the coarsest aggregations of their own plane, and this primary atom enwalled with spiral strands of the coarsest combinations of the seventh plane becomes the finest unit of spirit matter, or atom, of the sixth plane. These Sixth plane atoms and their endless combinations form the subdivisions of the spirit matter of the sixth plane. The sixth plane atom, in its turn, sets up a vortex in the coarsest aggregations of its own plane, and with these coarsest aggregations as a limiting wall becomes the finest unit of spirit matter, or atom, of the fifth plane. Again, these fifth plane atoms and their combinations form the subdivisions of the spirit matter of the fifth plane process is repeated to form successively the spirit matter of the fourth, the third, the second, and the first planes. These are the seven great regions of the universe, so far as their material constituents are concerned. A clearer idea of them will be gained by analogy when we come to master the modifications of the spirit matter of our own physical world. The word spirit matter is used designedly. It implies the fact that there is no such thing as dead matter. All matter is living. The tiniest particles are lives. Science speaks truly in affirming no force without matter, no matter without force. They are wedded together in an indissoluble marriage throughout the ages of life of a universe. And none can wrench them apart. Matter is form, and there is no form which does not express a life. Spirit is life, and there is no life that is not limited by a form. Even the Logos, the Supreme Lord, has during manifestation the universe as his form, and so down to the atom. This involution of the life of the Logos as the ensouling force in every particle, and its successive enwrapping in the spirit matter of every plane, so that the materials of each plane have within them in a hidden or latent condition, all the form and force possibilities of all the planes above them, as well as those of their own. These two facts make evolution certain and give to the very lowest particle the hidden potentialities which will render it fit, as they become active powers, to enter into the forms of the higher beings. In fact, evolution may be summed up in a phrase, it is latent potentialities becoming active powers. 
the second great wave of evolution, the evolution of form, and the third great wave, the evolution of self-consciousness, will be dealt with later on. These three currents of evolution are distinguishable on our earth in connection with humanity. The making of the materials, the building of the house, and the growing of the tenant of the house, or as said above, the evolution of spirit matter. The evolution of form, the evolution of self-consciousness. If the reader can grasp and retain this idea, he will find it a helpful clue to guide him through the labyrinth of facts. We can now turn to the detailed examination of the physical plane, that on which our world exists and to which our bodies belong. Examining the materials belonging to this plane, we are struck by their immense variety. The innumerable differences of constitution in the objects around us, minerals, vegetables, animals, all differing in their constituents. Matter hard and soft, transparent and opaque, brittle and ductile, bitter and sweet, pleasant and nauseous, colored and colorless. Out of this confusion, three subdivisions of matter emerge as a fundamental classification. Matter is solid, liquid, and gaseous. Further examination shows that these solids, liquids, and gases are made up by combinations of much simpler bodies, called by chemists, elements and that these elements may exist in a solid, liquid, or gaseous condition without changing their respective natures. Thus, the chemical element oxygen is a constituent of wood, and in combination with other elements forms the solid wood fibers. It exists in the sap with another element, yielding a liquid combination as water, and it exists also in it by itself as gas. Under these three conditions it is oxygen. Further, pure oxygen can be reduced from a gas to a liquid, and from a liquid to a solid, remaining pure oxygen all the time, and so with other elements. We thus obtain as three subdivisions or conditions of matter on the physical plane solid liquid gas. Searching further, we find a fourth condition, ether, and minuter search reveals that this ether exists in four conditions as well defined as those of solid, liquid, and gas. To take oxygen again as an example, as it may be reduced from the gaseous condition to the liquid and the solid, so it may be raised from the gaseous through four etheric stages, the last of which consists of the ultimate physical atom. The disintegration of the atom, taking the matter out of the physical plane altogether, and into the next plane above. In the annexed plate, three gases are shown in the gaseous and four etheric states. It will be observed that the structure of the ultimate physical atom is the same for all, and that the variety of the elements is due to the variety of ways in which these ultimate physical atoms combine. Thus, the seventh subdivision of physical spirit matter is composed of homogeneous atoms. The sixth is composed of fairly simple heterogeneous combinations of these. Each combination having as a unit, the fifth is composed of more complex combinations and the fourth of still more complex ones. But in all cases, these combinations act as units. The third subdivision consists of yet more complicated combinations, regarded by the chemist as gaseous atoms of elements. And on this subdivision, many of the combinations have received special names. Oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, chlorine, etc. And each newly discovered combination now receives its name, the second subdivision consists of combinations in the liquid condition, whether regarded as elements such as bromine, 
or as combinations such as water or ether. The first subdivision is composed of all solids, again, whether regarded as elements such as iodine, gold, lead, etc., or as compounds such as wood, stone, chalk, and so on. The physical plane may serve the student as a model from which, by analogy, he may gain an idea of the subdivisions of the spirit matter of other planes. When a theosophist speaks of a plane, he means a region throughout which spirit matter exists, all whose combinations are derived from a particular set of atoms. These atoms, in turn, are units possessing similar organizations, whose life is the life of the logos veiled in fewer or more coverings according to the plane, and whose form consists of the solid or lowest subdivision of matter, of the plane immediately above. A plane is thus a division in nature, as well as a metaphysical idea. Thus far, we have been studying the results in our own physical world of the evolution of spirit matter in our division of the first or lowest plane of our system. For countless ages, the fashioning of materials has been going on, the current of the evolution of spirit matter, and in the materials of our globe we see the outcome at the present time. But when we begin to study the inhabitants of the physical plane, we come to the evolution of form, the building of organisms out of these materials. When the evolution of materials has reached a sufficiently advanced state, the second great life wave from the Logos gave the impulse to the evolution of form. And he became the organizing force of his universe, countless hosts of entities entitled builders, taking part in the building up of forms out of combinations of spirit matter. The life of the Logos abiding in each form is its central controlling and directing energy. This building of forms on the higher planes cannot here be conveniently studied in detail. It may suffice to say that all forms exist as ideas in the mind of the Logos, and that in this second life wave these were thrown outwards as models to guide the builders. On the third and second planes, the early spirit matter combinations are designed to give it facility in assuming shapes organized to act as units and gradually to increase its stability when shaped into an organism. This process went on upon the third and second planes in what are termed the three elemental kingdoms, the combinations of matter formed therein being called generally elemental essence, and this essence being molded into forms by aggregation, the forms enduring for a time and then disintegrating. The outpoured life, or monad, evolved through these kingdoms and reached in due course the physical plane, where it began to draw together the ethers and hold them in filmy shapes, in which life currents played and into which the denser materials were builded, forming the first minerals. And these are beautifully shown, as may be seen by reference to any book on crystallurgy, the numerical and geometrical lines on which forms are constructed and from them may be gathered plentiful evidence that life is working in all minerals, although much cribbed, cabined, and confined. The fatigue to which metals are subject is another sign that they are living things, but it is here enough to say that the occult doctrine so regards them, knowing the already mentioned processes by which life has been involved in them. Great stability of form having been gained in many of the minerals, the evolving monad elaborated greater plasticity of form in the vegetable kingdom, combining this with stability of organization. 
these characteristics found a yet more balanced expression in the animal world and reached their culmination of equilibrium in man, whose physical body is made up of the constituents of most unstable equilibrium, thus giving great adaptability, and yet, which is held together by a combining central force, which resists general disintegration even under the most varied conditions. Man's physical body has two main divisions. The dense body, made up of constituents from the three lower levels of the physical plane, solids, liquids, and gases, and the etheric double, violet-gray or blue-gray in color, interpenetrating the dense body and composed of materials drawn from the four higher levels. The general function of the physical body is to receive contacts from the physical world and send the report of them inwards to serve as materials from which the conscious entity inhabiting the body is to elaborate knowledge. Its etheric portion also has the duty of acting as a medium through which the life currents poured out from the sun can be adapted to the uses of the denser particles. The sun is the great reservoir of the electrical, magnetic, and vital forces for our system, and it pours out abundantly these streams of life-giving energy. They are taken in by the etheric doubles of all minerals, vegetables, animals, and men, and are by them transmuted into the various life energies needed by each entity. The etheric doubles draw in, specialize, and distribute them over the physical counterparts. It has been observed that in vigorous health, much more of the life energies are transmitted than the physical body requires for its own support, and that the surplus is rayed out and is taken up and utilized by the weaker. What is technically called the health aura is the part of the etheric double that extends a few inches from the whole surface of the body and shows radiating lines like the radii of a sphere going outwards in all directions. These lines droop when vitality is diminished below the point of health and resume their radiating character with renewed vigor. It is this vital energy specialized by the etheric double which is poured out by the mesmerizer for the restoration of the weak and for the cure of the disease, although he often mingles with it currents of a more rarefied kind. Hence the depletion of vital energy shown by the exhaustion of the mesmerizer who prolongs his work to excess. Man's body is fine or coarse in its texture according to the materials drawn from the physical plane for its composition. Each subdivision of matter yields finer or coarser materials. Compare the bodies of a butcher and of a refined student. Both have solids in them, but solids of such different qualities. Further, we know that a coarse body can be refined, a refined body coarsened. The body is constantly changing. Each particle is a life, and the lives come and go. They are drawn to a body consonant with themselves. They are repelled from one discordant with themselves. All things live in rhythmical vibrations. All seek the harmonious and are repelled by dissonance. The pure body repels coarse particles because they vibrate at rates discordant with its own. The coarse body attracts them because their vibrations accord with its own. Hence, if the body changes its rates of vibration, it gradually drives out of it the constituents that cannot fall into the new rhythm fills up their places by drawing in from external nature fresh constituents that are harmonious. 
Nature provides materials vibrating in all possible ways, and each body exercises its own selective action. In the earlier building of human bodies, this selective action was due to the monad of form. But now that man is a self-conscious entity, he presides over his own building. By his thoughts, he strikes the keynote of his music and sets up the rhythms that are the most powerful factors in the continual changes in his physical and other bodies. As his knowledge increases, he learns how to build up his physical body with pure food and so facilitates the tuning of it. He learns to live by the axiom of purification. Pure food, a pure mind, constant memory of God. As the highest creature living on the physical plane, he is the vice-regent of the Logos thereon responsible so far as his powers extend for its order, peace and good government, and this duty he cannot discharge without these three requisites. The physical body, thus composed of the elements drawn from all the subdivisions of the physical plane, is fitted to receive and to answer impressions from it of every kind. Its first contacts will be of the simplest and crudest sorts. And as the life within it thrills out in answer to the stimulus from without, throwing its molecules into responsive vibrations, there is developed all over the body the sense of touch, the recognition of something coming into contact with it. As specialized sense organs are developed to receive special kinds of vibrations, the value of the body increases as a future vehicle for a conscious entity on the physical plane. The more impressions it can answer to, the more useful does it become. For only those to which it can answer can reach the consciousness. Even now there are myriads of vibrations pulsing around us in physical nature, from the knowledge of which we are shut out because of the inability of our physical vehicle to receive and vibrate in accord with them. Unimagined beauties, exquisite sounds, delicate subtleties, touch the walls of our prison house and pass on unheeded. Not yet is developed the perfect body that shall thrill to every pulse in nature as the Aeolian harp to the zephyr. The vibrations that the body is able to receive it transmits to physical centers, belonging to its highly complicated nervous system. The etheric vibrations which accompany all the vibrations of the denser physical constituents are similarly received by the etheric double and transmitted to its corresponding centers. Most of the vibrations in the dense matter are changed into chemical, heat, and other forms of physical energy. The etheric gives rise to magnetic and electric action and also pass on the vibrations to the astral body, whence, as we shall see later, they reach the mind. Thus, information about the external world reaches the conscious entity enthroned in the body, the Lord of the body, as he is sometimes called. As the channels of information develop and are exercised, the conscious entity grows by the materials supplied to his thought by them. But so little is man yet developed that even the etheric double is not yet sufficiently harmonized to regularly convey to the man impressions received by it independently of its denser comrade, or to impress them on his brain. Occasionally it succeeds in doing so, and then we have the lowest form of clairvoyance, the seeing of the etheric doubles of physical objects, and of things that have etheric bodies as their lowest vesture. Man dwells, as we shall see, in various vehicles, physical, astral, and mental, 
And it is important to know and remember that as we are evolving upwards, the lowest of the vehicles, the dense physical is that which consciousness first controls and rationalizes. The physical brain is the instrument of consciousness in waking life on the physical plane, and consciousness works in it. In the undeveloped man, more effectively than in any other vehicle, its potentialities are less than those of the subtler vehicles, but its actualities are greater, and the man knows himself as I in the physical body, ere he finds himself elsewhere. Even if he be more highly developed than the average man, he can only show as much of himself down here as the physical organism permits. For consciousness can manifest on the physical plane only so much as the physical vehicle can carry. The dense and etheric bodies are not normally separated during earth life. They normally function together as the lower and higher strings of a single instrument when a chord is struck but they also carry on separate through coordinated activities. Under conditions of weak health or nervous excitement, the etheric double may in great part be abnormally extruded from its dense counterpart. The latter then becomes very dully conscious or entranced, according to the less or greater amount of the etheric matter extruded. Anesthetics drive out the greater part of the etheric double so that consciousness cannot affect or be affected by the dense body, its bridge of communication being broken. In the abnormally organized persons called mediums, dislocation of the etheric and dense bodies easily occurs, and the etheric double, when extruded, largely supplies the physical basis for materializations. In sleep, when the consciousness leaves the physical vehicle which it uses during waking life, the dense and etheric bodies remain together. But in the physical dream life, they function to some extent independently. Impressions experienced during waking life are reproduced by the automatic action of the body, and both the physical and etheric brains are filled with disjointed fragmentary pictures. The vibrations, as it were, jostling each other and causing the most grotesque combinations. Vibrations from outside also affect both, and combinations often set up during waking life are easily called into activity by currents from the astral world, of like nature with themselves. The purity or impurity of waking thoughts will largely govern the pictures arising in dreams. Whether spontaneously set up or induced from without, at what is called death, the etheric double is drawn away from its dense counterpart by the escaping consciousness. The magnetic tie exists between them during earth life is snapped asunder, and for some hours the consciousness remains enveloped in this etheric garb. In this, it sometimes appears to those with whom it is closely bound up, as a cloudy figure, very dully conscious and speechless, the wraith. It may also be seen after the conscious entity has deserted it, floating over the grave where its dense counterpart is buried, slowly disintegrating as time goes on. When the time comes for rebirth, the etheric double is built in advance of the dense body, the latter exactly following it in its antenatal development. These bodies may be said to trace the limitations within which the conscious entity will have to live and work during his earth life a subject that will be more fully explained in Chapter 9 on Karma. 
Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.